Everybody wants to play a bigger part. This is day one. This is day one. Everybody's wondering what we are at heart. This is day one. This is day one. Everybody wants to play a bigger part. Why are you waiting for tomorrow to start? This is day one. Okay, it's the day one leadership podcast. It's an icy day here in Toronto, but I think we're going to have an extremely warm conversation. I am here with Major General Erica Studerman, United States Air Force, retired. She is a veteran of Operations Desert Storm, Desert Shield, and Allied Force. She is the president of the board of directors of the United Way of Greater Lafayette in Indiana. She's a former director of the executive MBA programs at Purdue University, former chancellor, National Security Space Institute, United States Space Command, and she even played the French horn in the Purdue All-American Marching Band. Uh, and I have to say, Erica, without a doubt, you have the most impressive array of titles of anyone I've ever had on the podcast. Well, thank you, Drew. Um, it's funny, once you retire from the Air Force, you're still always what you were. I am a major general. I add retired at the end of it, uh, but I still think like, a, uh, like an active duty person like a veteran because you are the uniform and it never goes away so but please call me erica oh wonderful so you've held an impressive array of leadership roles and let's go tell me about how you learned what a leader was growing up and whether or not it turned out to be what you were taught well i mainly back in those days i'm a child of the um 50s i was i'm 62 years old now, so I was born in 1953, so uh, leadership mainly came from watching male role models, and my, my dad was one of them. He's a World War II veteran, uh, Army, infantry in the Pacific, so he was young at the time. Uh, when he graduated from high school, three months later, he was on the troop ship, so Mainly, mainly watching male role models, and that was in college, um, when I was in ROTC program, uh, women really weren't there at the, uh, at the officer level, not that many of them. So growing up, it was teachers, again, uh, a lot of males, but a lot of very good female role models as well. So between school and my parents, that was the leadership training and modeling that I had growing up. And I think they did, they did a good job. Uh, my parents always told me, just be yourself, do what you want to do, and, and you will be fine. And they supported me in everything. And that in itself is a, is a great leadership model. Um, when I told them my senior year of high school that I wanted to go into the military, tentatively, um, they fully supported me. And Vietnam was still raging at the time because this was in 1972. So that in itself is, I think, demonstrated great leadership where you support your people, you hear them out, and, uh, and, and you support what they want to do in the long term which may not be something that you personally would want to do. My dad told me, having been a World War II veteran, uh, that uh, he really couldn't support me going into the Army because he had not had a great experience, which most of the men 
and those times did not have a good experience. But he said, other than that, uh, I'll support you 100%. So that's a good part of the reason that I chose the Air Force. It was the most civilian of the services, and it wasn't the Army. So those are basically my, my leadership role models, my parents the schools that I went to, male and female, and then an ROTC. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I did some research, and, and I read the Air Force Academy, and this is up until maybe 15 or so years ago, had a, a two-foot aluminum sign outside of it that simply said, bring me men. And, and that, that was is- the type of military you chose to enter. You must have known that was going to be a difficult experience. What drew you to it as a career? It, you must have known it was going to be a tough one. Well, I did, and that was part of the allure, I believe. Uh, it's in your DNA. If you, cho- if you choose to go into the military, you are somehow wired that way. Now, f- for me, growing up in the 50s and 60s, I knew that I wanted to have a job that would give me equal opportunity promotion for promotion and increased responsibilities and equal pay for equal work. Well, where in the late 60s, early 70s could you find that? It was pretty much the military. So that was a driving force, as well as the idea that I wanted to do more for the common good, not just put food on my table, uh, you know, have money to buy a car and a house. I wanted to work more at a, at a high level to help a lot of people and to help my country. So you combine that, equal pay for equal work, equal opportunity for increased responsibility, and wanting to do the greater good, the military was a perfect choice for me. And I knew it was going to be hard. Uh, Women weren't even allowed to go to the academy until I had graduated. 1976, in the fall, was the first year that women entered the Air Force Academy. And by then, I already had my undergraduate degree. And I went straight into graduate school, and I was actually asked if, um, at Purdue if I wanted to start all over again and be in the first class of women to enter the Air Force Academy. And I was just blown away by that. I mean, I worked very hard at Purdue to get my undergraduate degree and, and had a good experience in ROTC as well, which, which still had just barely opened up for women as a non-segregated program, and uh, I said, no, thank you. I've, I've had a good undergraduate experience. I didn't have the opportunity. Um, that is your problem, not mine. And basically, that was, that was my, my thought. I didn't think it would slow me down at all. It would have been very prestigious to have been in the first class, but I wasn't worried about or concerned about prestige. I wanted to get on, learn as much as I can, contribute as much as I can, and get started on my career. Now, in doing my research, I found you were told very early on in your military career that women have no place in the military. You knew it was going to be hard. Did you expect that sort of direct, come out, blunt, say it? And looking back, how did hearing that impact you? It was my first day as a second lieutenant after going through my technical school to be an intelligence officer. My first supervisor, a major 
I remember him very clearly, Lieutenant Colonel, uh, or excuse me, Major Acosta. And he, I was in front of his desk reporting in officially, and he said, women have no business in the military. And that's where the conversation started. And he tried to make my life miserable, and to a certain extent he did. But that made me all the more resolute to do a good job to show that women did belong in the military. And yes, there were quite a few jobs that weren't open to us, such as being a, a crew member, pilot, navigator. But I chose the intelligence career field because that was as close to operations that I could get as a female officer. So, and he was the head of uh, intelligence at the 7th Bomb Wing at Carswell Air Force Base in Fort Worth, Texas. It was actually combat intelligence. And uh, so I just gritted my teeth and uh, saluted smartly and went on and proved that, that he was wrong. I mean, he retired as a, as a major, I retired as a major general, and I think I proved that women can do the job. And I was very much one of the early females coming into to the military after Vietnam. So uh, he, he, he tried to make my life miserable, but it only made me work harder. Now, has that changed in your mind? Do you think that a woman entering the military now does she still face that type of, of mindset? Has it changed how much and, and in what ways in your mind? I think it's changed immensely. Uh, I still had to prove myself, uh, I think right up until the time I pinned on uh, Colonel, 06 rank, I was still having to prove that I wasn't the dumb blonde that people thought that women were, you know, there was kind of a stereotypical view of a, a blonde woman. And, and that translated to other women as well. Um, but I, but I got, I got through that. But today's woman, they have been in a society that is a lot more accepting of equality. Um, and, and, and a lot of other things too. Gays are a lot more accepted, the LBGT community. Um, I think people are less worried about what your religion is and more worried about what your, your personality is. So I think women have it easier, but it's still not easy for a woman going into the military. Only just recently have women been allowed into combat, ground combat. Uh, the, the Air Force opened up flying for women um, years ago, but that wasn't on-the-ground combat that you see in the Army. A still important contribution, you know, softening um, the, the folks on the ground in, in order to have a better experience for the Army coming in later with boots on ground. But it's easier but it's still hard. I think you're still looked at when you're only 15 to 20 percent of the military population, you're going to be scrutinized a lot more. And four star general Lori Robinson, who has just been nominated to be the, the first combatant commander, the first female combatant commander, that shows how far we've come. 
Now, it's interesting because I agree. I hope that's the case. I mean, I can't speak from the same uh, like history of actual experience doing so. But I, you saw my presentation at Purdue. It's how we were lucky enough to, to connect. And I mentioned in that that when you do searches for leadership or archetypal leadership roles, when you search for leader on Google Images, it's several pages before you see the first image of a woman and she doesn't even have a face. When you search for CEO, Barbie is the first woman to appear. So before I spoke with you, I searched for general. I wanted to see what happened when you did a Google image search of the term general. And there are 78 images that appear before the first image of a woman. It's uh, Major General Camille Nichols. And so comedian Sasha Baron Cohen appears twice. Elmo appears once before a woman appears. In the top 100 images, there are three women and one of them is to advertise a sexy general Halloween costume. I wasn't aware that existed. Oh, gosh. So society continues to send the message that leadership is a predominantly male domain. And I, I'm often asked during Q&As, like, what should we be doing about that? Now, they ask the straight white guy on stage with a microphone, like, what should we do to, uh, to address the barriers women specifically face being seen as leaders and seeing themselves as leaders? I'd rather ask you, like, what are your thoughts on the barriers women specifically are facing, uh, being seen as leaders and seeing themselves as leaders. How can we address that more effectively? Well, I think it starts at very early in one's education. Uh, I'm, as you know, I'm the president of United Way of, of Greater Lafayette, uh, pres uh, president of the board of directors. And we have a very active program called Read to Succeed, where we make sure that third graders in our schools are reading at third grade level. At, at, by age, by the third grade, you are, you're no longer learning to read, you're reading to learn. So right now we're tracking that very carefully, and volunteers who go into the schools around here are making sure that our youngsters, our third graders, are reading at the third grade level, and we've seen great statistics. Well, I think that the same thing needs, needs to be done for young women in around the fifth and sixth grade because that's the time period when they think that they can't do math very well, they can't do science. And there's less uh, of a pejorative attitude towards a young girl because she's smart. In, in my day and age, if you were a smart female, you were pretty much uh, a nerd. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that's as prevalent today, but girls, young girls, still get the idea that they're not going to be good at math and science. The, the STEM, uh, the, the science, technology, uh, engineering, and math. And we've got to get around that early on in, in the education process. So I think that would be one way to uh, improve women going into more technical areas and having more confidence in themselves. I think there's also too much emphasis on body image. And when I see high school girls around here who look like they're 25 and 26, I, I am concerned. Oh, one shouldn't be spending a predominant part of their time trying to make themselves look 10, 12 years older than what they are, more, mature, more, more beautiful. I mean, you're, if you take good care of yourself, if you live a healthy lifestyle, you're automatically going to be beautiful inward and outwardly. 
and it and it and the glow will come from within. So um, I think those are some of the things that that we can do. I, I'm not so much a fan of segregating women and trying to give them extremely special treatment. I think we just need to make opportunities available for everyone to be better at math and science in fifth and sixth grades, but really have teachers look out for the women who, or for the young girls who might be a little bit uh, timid. As for me and my career as I went through, I always look for promising young people. I think one of the things I was known best for when I was still in uniform was my mentoring. I learned a long time ago that I wasn't the best intelligence officer out there, but I knew how to find the best and take care of them and mentor them. And I didn't care if they were male or female. Um, A little bit of part of me always watched out for the young girls coming up through who might be more timid and to help get them more confidence. But, But we all are raised up if everybody is, more confident in in what they do. So that's sort of how I look at it. Starting at the third grade, maybe into fifth and sixth grade, I haven't seen any programs like that, but I'm sure they're out there. And then continue to mentor folks all the way through one's career. I still get phone calls, emails from folks who I have mentored who are now pinning on stars and that's the best thing that I ever did as a senior officer is to help others. And you told, like, there's already been one story you told us about men actively standing in the way of a woman and saying, you know, this is not right for you. And we talk about uh, what can we do for women to empower them. Uh, let me ask you this as a man, like, what is the best role I can play? in creating a more equitable path to leadership roles. Like it sounds like you've had a career where men consistently, whether it was conscious or unconscious, did things to stand in the way of that, that equitable access to leadership roles. What's what best role can I play? What best role can, can men play in, in what are the things we need to stop doing or start doing to more effectively make sure that more people are, as you say, pinning stars on whether that's, you know, actual doing it in the military or whatever they're trying to do, reaching the very top levels. Well, my mentors in the military were males because that's all that was available to me. The first, the most senior officer I saw as a young lieutenant was a female lieutenant colonel. And, and to me, that was, I was almost speechless at, at, when I first met her because you did not see a female lieutenant colonel back in the uh, early 80s. Uh, or, or they were rare. So um, I, I can't complain about the mentoring that I received from males. I mean, I had the, the, my very first experience was bad, but subsequent to that, I had extremely good mentors who helped me through. I remember one squadron commander who sat me down when I was a young captain and said, uh, Captain Studerman, you need to slow down. You're... You're going up through the ranks very quickly uh, because I, I did make uh, three below the zone promotions, so I was promoted early ahead of my peers. Um, and he said, you, you need to grow into your job and, and take more time and be more conscious about what you're doing in your career. That was a, 
immensely important to me to, to try to slow down a little bit and consolidate what I had already gained. Uh, I had uh, another mentor, um, an ambassador, Jacques Klein, who told me in order to, to do better and be a better officer, I need to diversify. I need to get out of the intelligence career field and try some more things out. And it took me two years before I followed his advice, and he was persistent in reminding me that I need to diversify and do more and learn more. And I finally did it, and I truly believe that that is a big reason why I was promoted to general officer in the, in the first place. Yes, I was a good intelligence officer. I took good care of my people. But as you pointed out initially, my background is very eclectic. I've done a lot of different things, and when you pull all that together, it makes a better, well-rounded person who can deal with whatever situation is thrown at, at, at me, for instance. So I cannot complain about the male mentors uh, that I've had. I think that if that men are still predominantly in the senior positions. In the Air Force, we are getting more and more women up there, but men in the military, in, in corporations, still need to mentor, male or female. Anyone who they think is promising, they, they need to do that. And they need to show res respect, especially to the women, so that they don't feel like they're just, an ornament, a pretty ornament, sitting out there uh, being looked at. I had one very uh, bad experience when I was working at 8th Air Force. Uh, I was a command briefer, so I briefed the three-star uh, every morning for a certain period of time. And I, when I was new to doing that, one time he asked me, I was in a booth where no one could see me. They just heard my voice and were able to read my slides. And at the end of my first one, he asked me to please step out of the booth and come to the front of the screen so he could see what I looked like. Now, to me, that was, that was hugely embarrassing uh, because it shouldn't matter what I look like. If he wanted to meet me because I was a new intelligence command briefer for him, that, that was something that could have been done in a more private, personal way. But this made me feel like an object that was glittering and put in the spotlight just to see what I looked like. And that I found offensive. But of course, it was a three-star general. You do what you're, what you're asked to do. Uh, but I did receive an apology after that was pointed out to him by someone other than me. Um, so treat, treat them like, treat women like individuals, not like your mother where you're, you're going to be cuckooing over them or your wife. Treat them like an equal, and things will work themselves out. I am a little concerned about how politically correct people are today. I know it's important to be respectful to people, but we have taken a lot of the camaraderie, I think, that can come out from 
innocent bantering and having fun. And and we still do a lot of that in the Air Force. It's a lot more respectful than it was back in the old days. But you should be able to hug a friend and not have somebody um, yell you know, harassment, etc. And there are very clear rules about harassment in, in the Air Force, in the military, and people need to follow that and be respectful, but we need to keep that sense of camaraderie that that exists in a wartime scenario and be able to have that translate into to the peacetime area as well. So, uh, And that will help, I think, equality uh, for women, too, to be... I'm not saying they should be seen as one of the guys, but they should be seen as somebody that does not have to be treated with white, uh, clean gloves. They need they need to be an equal. And, and it's interesting. We talk about uh, equals, and you talk and you use like mentorship and empowerment. Uh, but you also commented, you know, it's a three-star general. You do what you're told. Now, military leadership is often portrayed as that that strictly hierarchical, top-down, directive leadership. The lower down the chain you are, the less of a leader you are. You're expected to be a follower. Now, I, I, met, I chatted with you briefly after Purdue. Is that an accurate description in your mind? Because it's a big part of my message is that leadership isn't just top-down hierarchical and that le- there's a form of leadership of which we're all capable. You don't have to be just a, you know, a president or a CEO or, as is a common example I use, a general. And yet here I am talking to a, a general. Is that an accurate depiction in your mind of what goes on in terms of military leadership? Because as I speak to people in the military, I'm often told, you know what, that's, that's not exactly how we teach leadership. Is that an accurate depiction that it's, it's top-down, hierarchical, do what you're told? Or is there a leadership that's expected of individuals at every level? Oh, no, there's leadership expected uh, for individuals at every single level. And... And remember, I was talking about a three-star general, and I was a a captain, and it it really wasn't a leadership position. He, I mean, when I say that, he it wasn't a leadership situation. I think he showed poor leadership by singling me out and having me stand out there in the spotlight. But no, there was no important decision made at that point. It was just uh, poor judgment on his part. Leadership in the Air Force today is you sit around the table, the, the general, the senior leaders, you discuss options, collateral damage, and it's very much a give and take. The, the young folks today are not going to just sit back and do what they're told to do. They want to have input, and they should, because a much better decision is going to be made if you have a diverse population sitting around that table. The, the key is that once the decision is made by the senior officer and all the uh, positives and negatives have been discussed and realized, once that decision is made, then it's executed. And, uh, and there's, there's no going back. I mean, you can do course corrections, but the decision is made you move on. And this is the area where I see in my volunteer life where we have the most difficulty. It's sometimes hard for, for people to make decisions. And the, the thing is, you use the information that you have at the time 
you make you listen, you make the best decision that you can with the information that you have at that time, and you execute. Because no decision is making a decision. So, uh, no, it is not top-down. There's very much leadership going on in all the levels. I mean, as a brand-new second lieutenant, you have people reporting to you. I know one of my first jobs was uh, I had uh, two direct reports. As a brand new second lieutenant, I also was responsible for uh, arm, helping arm the nuclear weapons on the B-52s. A, a two-person a two process, obviously, um, but you have an important job as a brand new second lieutenant when you come into the into the service. So um, I think things have changed very much so. And, and you talked about that difference. You transitioned in, as, into a leader in the nonprofit industry, the United Way, several other boards. What right. drew you into that? You, you do a tremendous amount of work to support people with disabilities. Why is that such a passion for you? Well, I have two siblings who are disabled, and I have two daughters with intellectual developmental disabilities. So that was a natural draw. But once you've served your country for 34 years, in my case, you don't stop doing service for your country. You, you, you may do it at a more local level. I volunteer at the state and local level. But you're so, you're, like I said, you're wired to do the military. You're wired to do public service. And I just do it in a different way. The difference is I get to choose exactly where I want to participate in my local and state environment. So that was a given. Uh, about a year before I retired, I started looking around to decide, okay, what organizations do I want to work in and work with? And I started a year out, and then the, it made my transition from military to civilian a lot easier. Now, I do have to be... Um, less directive as a, say, a, the president of the board of directors of the United Way, less directive than what I would be in my military job uh, as far as how I express things. But I think a lot of people appreciate the directness that people in the military bring to a civilian organization. And I think that's why they are sought after um, upon retirement, I, I don't mince words. Um, I try not to be brusque, but if I have to be, I will be to get my point across. But that's, that's an art form that people in the military develop naturally. When you're out in the field on a deployment, you don't have time to chew and jaw over things. Uh, information is taken in quickly, assimilated. You have your group of people, a decision's made. You execute, and you don't um, waste time. And so bringing that to a civilian uh, environment can be challenging, but I think overall people appreciate it. And what have you learned about leadership from the individuals with disabilities with whom you work? 
they are, now you're talking, not the people who have disabilities, but the people who work in that disability environment? Uh, either one, I think, because I'm, I'm assuming that within the military, because of there's the, the rigorous selection process, this would be a, a, I mean, it's members of your family, but that must be a different style of, of both individuals drawn to it. And uh, I'm always asking, like, I want to know where people learn new lessons in leadership. And, and so either way, is it the people who work there or the individuals with disabilities? Well, I know that I've learned a lot from my brother and sister and my two girls, and I know that I'm a better person because of them. Uh, my leadership has been, I think, um, I'm a better listener it, just right out of the box because I have seen how my loved ones, can can be torn down with just a thoughtless word or comment and that really that hurt me when I saw it happen to my siblings and my daughters and I never want to be the type of person who who doesn't listen and try to understand first before saying something I don't want to make a thoughtless mean comment that I may not know is, is inappropriate and bring somebody down who, who doesn't need it at that point. And when I, when I say bring them down, I mean to be just not to understand where they're coming from, what they're saying, and why they feel the way they do. So my girls especially have made me be a better listener and I think a better leader trying to understand their needs and, and wants. And their needs and wants are different than, than mine. Uh, my oldest daughter has autism. Uh, and so she needs a very Spartan environment. Uh, she doesn't want a whole lot of distractions. So when she moved into an apartment, I was ready to go in there and fully decorate it, spend whatever needed to be done to do it. And she said, Mom, I don't want any of that. Just, just let it be. So I had to step back and realize that I was doing it for me not for her. And that is the, that is the wrong way uh, to try to help somebody. So those leadership lessons, and it's, it's, it's more than leadership, it's just your, your living lessons have come from interactions with, with my daughters. Uh, they're, especially my oldest who has autism and Tourette syndrome, she is brutally honest. Her her, what comes out of her mouth does not go through any kind of judgment block. And, uh, and sometimes it can be very frustrating. Sometimes it's very humorous. And sometimes it sets me back on my heels and I have to go, whoa, I need to, I need to pull myself back a little bit and do what she needs, not what I want to do. So the people who work in the disability area, usually have some sort of personal experience in it. This is what I've found, especially the caregivers. They've had a loved one, a relative, perhaps a close relative, and they understand the challenges out there. People with disabilities used to be put in institutions for their, for their whole lives. And just recently, with well, since 1990, the state of Indiana has realized that People with disabilities should not be in institutions. They should be living out in the community. They should be helped to find employment because they too can be uh, taxpayers. 
they provide a more rounded community, a, a more diverse community, and they bring strengths too. My daughter's strength is being brutally honest, and and you may not want to hear what she has to say, but uh, it's usually very insightful. So uh, they they all, I would say the majority of them do have a very personal experience that drives them to work in, in that field. And that's exactly why I volunteer with the Ark of Indiana and uh, have been on the board of directors for Wabash Center, a big service provider in our local area. And and if I, I know that if I have issues with my brother who is cared for by Wabash Center and I'm on the board, I hate to think what might be happening with some other family who who maybe are not as comfortable marching into the CEO's office and saying, hey, we need to get this fixed. So I'm very, very careful about making sure that, yes, I'm taking care of my loved ones, but I want a solution at, at a higher level that means everybody is getting a better level of care, statewide and local. So service to your country, uh, service to the community through uh, not-for-profit boards, uh, but you know, running organizations, chairing, uh, chairing boards. Uh, it's been a, a long career in a lot of different areas. So let's let's take it back to that version of Erica, who I always say day one is you know you walk through your first day of high school. Imagine you got to sit down with her, and and sit across. What are a couple of things about the world you you've learned through all of your experiences that you'd want to tell? I guess that 13-year-old version of Erica on that day as she starts to head off to, to go through high school? Well, I would tell her that, that you can afford to take risks in high school and also through, through college because both of them are pretty safe environments. And that's where you should take risks. That's where you need to try as many different courses as you can to find out what you truly want to do for the rest of your life. Um, it's tried to say follow your passion, but you're going to have to work your entire life. You may as well work in something that you enjoy. Um, I was fortunate and I found my niche was in, was in the Air Force, but if you need to find your niche early. I, I found mine in at my senior year of high school. and. If it had been the wrong way for me to go back then, I still had time to uh, redirect my course. So just take risks. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, felonious activity or anything like that. Um, just try out everything so that you can eliminate what you know you don't want to do in the long term and, uh, and head more towards what's going to make you happy in the long run. Um, another piece of advice I would say, is don't accumulate things, accumulate, accumulate experiences. And I know in high school today, a lot more than in my day, people want to have the latest clothes, the, the latest video games, uh, all these possessions. And the, the better use of money that would go to more possessions is to do a year abroad in, in, in high school or college. Travel, uh, and I'm not talking only overseas travel, I'm talking about see your own state, 
you know, there's a lot you can see with, with a three or four hour drive or less. See our country and see the world as much as you can afford at any one time because those are the experiences that you're going to remember. It's not that new coach purse that you bought when you were a sophomore in high school. It's the travel that you did uh, with your family. So if and you, then, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, uh, the third piece of advice I would have for myself is to make at least one truly great friend for life who you can count on uh, no matter what. And I didn't develop a friend for life until my first year of college. I had lots of friends in high school, but this is why I say you can begin again. Um, between my high school and freshman year of college, I changed my name. And I know that sounds very strange, but when I went into ROTC, it was first name, middle initial. Well, in high school and all my younger years, I went by my middle name. Well, I decided my senior year um, that summer to go to using my first name. So it was a totally different name, and, it, and I had to train myself to hear that name when it was called, to write that name, and that is like the epitome of beginning again. I also did not room with any of my high school friends when I started at Purdue. I decided I want to start fresh. This is a new me. What better way to do it than not be with people who you've known for uh, grades K through 12, and to change my name. So, um, but then I was very fortunate to meet a lady my freshman year who we are still extremely close, and we see each other all the time and at every major holidays, including our entire families getting together. So those kind of friends don't come around very often, but you need to cultivate as many friendships as you can, and one of them will hopefully develop into one that will be lifelong. It doesn't matter how many Facebook friends you have or connections on LinkedIn. It's the people who you know will drive over to your house at 10 o'clock at night if, if you need them. Wow, that, that's amazing. Well, did you feel as if changing your name, and you said you had to learn to... to was it feeling as if you were a different person? I mean, you, you said it was a name you'd always had, but you hadn't used it. Mm -hmm. And, and it, it just struck you one day that to become, a, to do a new start, you just would use a different name? How did, it, how did that genesis come? Well, it was, it was because in the military, it's first name, middle initial. So I, I couldn't go by first initial, middle name. So and I and I did not like my first name. Erica 62 years ago was not a name that anyone had ever heard. Uh I mean now it's it's more common, uh but still not it's not ubiquitous. So it was it was primarily okay, I'm going to try this military thing and I'm going to and I'm going to go full bore, which is what I do with anything that I try. I'm going to switch which name I go by. And it's kind of handy now when I get a phone call and somebody asks for Dawn, I know what time period they are from. <laughs> it's either family or it's high school or earlier. Uh, because my, my mom still calls me Dawn. My, all my relatives do. But it's only from college on that call me Erica. So 
it's uh, I truly had that opportunity and I took it to completely start over and um, I became a, a different person and and it was helped by the fact that I did my junior year abroad at Purdue. I went to school in Strasbourg, France. You talk about learning how to be independent, uh, seeing the world, that is a great way to do it. And it's only a year, but it changed my personality completely. I was more aggressive when I got back in a good way. Uh, I, was, I kind of leaned forward more than I leaned back, which is very good. And I, and I think it helped me again in my, my military career. I had seen another whole way of living, and I knew that the United States is the best place in the entire world to live. And that only made me want to be a better Air Force officer when I was finally commissioned, because I had seen, I had seen it all. I had I'd hitchhiked extensively through Europe with uh, two other friends, and... Um, I, there, I felt like there was nothing that could stop me, and that was pretty much true. I gained a lot of independence, a lot of self-confidence by being on my own with oversight if needed. That's interesting. It's, uh, one of our recent uh, guests commented on the importance of creating, uh, creating bookmarks or landmarks in your life when something big happens. So you know, okay, here's a symbol of a change. I've heard people say they got a tattoo to, to commemorate a major change in their life. Uh, you're the first person I've talked to who said, you know what? I decided I would, I would change my name. Uh, and, yeah. and, and in this case, simply take one that you'd always had and decide to use it. And it's interesting, the idea of, you, of taking something you had always had and using it differently. What an interesting idea. Thanks for, sh- like, thanks for sharing that. That's really cool. You're welcome. And, it and, worked. Oh, and, and see... This is a question I love to ask because you've seen my presentation. You know I talk about how questions can change behavior. If you could give a young version of yourself one question to ask and answer every day and you say, look, Erica, or I guess at the time it would be Don, Don, um, <laughs> you need to have an answer for this question by the end of every day. What question would it be? Well, Drew, I'm going to steal this from you because I was so impressed by the presentation you gave at Purdue at the Mortar Board Leaders Conference, I would ask myself at the, at the end of every single day, did I add value today? That concept that you gave, it, is, it, it, it just is so wonderful and a great way to look at life. I mean, you, you could say, okay, did I do something good today? Uh, was I kind? But... When you ask yourself, did I add value today, that encompasses everything that you do. It's not piecemeal. It's, it's a broad scope. Did I add value? And that, to me, was one of the most important things that I've ever heard about how to conduct my life. You know it in bits and pieces, but to put it that way makes it real. And I, I wish that someone had given me that concept, a way to, to, to verbalize that concept back then, because I do ask myself that with every transaction and interaction that I have with people and, and with myself, did I add value today? So I can only thank you for doing that. And I, I know that a lot of our mortar boarders and the people who attended our conference took that away and 
are applying it every single day. I, I'm beyond honored by that. Thank you. And, and, and I'll tell you that a big part of what I think is that your adding value comes from the core values you care most about. And, and so as we start mm-hmm. to move towards the end of our talk today, I, I, lo- I love asking our guests. So as a chance of letting, uh, as a chance of making our, our listeners be able to think about their own, what are the values that drive you? If someone, I always say, if someone followed you around for 30 days, what are the values that you hope you stand for, that you strive for on a daily basis so that you can well, use I'm them to add go, value? I, I am going to go back to the Air Force core values, which are so simple. There are only three of them. They're short. And I think because they are short and simple, you can internalize them better. But the first one is integrity first then service before self, and last of all, excellence in all we do. I think that encompasses everything that you would face in your life. Um, Integrity is the number one, because if if people had integrity, we wouldn't be having the issues that we're having in uh, our world today. Um, Service before self, I mean, I think that's why people go into the military, but but everybody needs that. And service before self means also taking care of yourself so that you can still do service to your country, to your state, um, and to your local organizations. So living a healthy lifestyle, I think, falls under that. And then excellence in all we do. Like I said, I wasn't the best intelligence officer out there. I was good, mind you. But I could recognize who the best were, mentor them, and help them develop into the best officers and NCOs that they could ever be. So those are three simple things that I learned and, and follow. And, and then there's an, another one. It's not a core value, but um, it's one that's very important to me, and that's called active followership, where... No, you can't be the leader in every single situation, but you need to be an active follower, one who will tell the leader what he or she is doing wrong, what needs to be done differently, how can we do this better, and not just sit back and do, but be part of the conversation and part of the decision-making, and that would be active followership. And you, you point something really interesting there. And this is something I'm think I'm betting some listeners are thinking as you say that you are, uh, or you've been a major general, which means you have in many rooms been the boss. And so when you say you've got to tell the leader when they're doing something wrong, in your experience, when somebody who you call them, you know, as a follower, wants to do that, how is the best way of approaching telling someone who, whether they actually outrank you or, uh, you know, in the military they actually outrank you, but in the workforce. Or if you're a student and it's a professor, what's the best way to approach telling a leader when you think they're wrong? Well, hopefully that individual, the active follower, will be around the table, engaged in the conversation, helping guide the leader to the, to the decision that needs to be made. Uh, and, and be respectful, make sure you're heard, and then, and then let uh, the, the course take its way. Um, another way to do it is to, if, if you really, really know that this is the wrong approach, I would meet with that senior leader privately 
because you do need to be respectful when you're with a group of people, military or civilian. And if, if you have true issues that you can, that maybe are very close held personal situation that you could add to the decision making process, that may need to be done, I think, in a private setting where um, the, the, the full import of what that means to you can come out. Because I know there are some situations where you don't want to lay it out in front of a whole group of, of people. Um, for instance, when I was deployed, we had, a, we had a church service that was in our compound that it was a small conference room, and there were only maybe 12 of us around the table trying to have church service. Well, that, that was an area where I'm not comfortable speaking about my personal life, my religious life, so maybe you do something like that a little bit more privately. And I always love asking leaders, there's a lot of advice that gets thrown around out there. Is there a piece of advice out there that gets repeated all the time that when you hear it, you say, stop telling people that? I call them cultural cliches. Is there a, a piece of leadership advice, a mantra, a tip that keeps getting thrown around that when you hear it, you say, not so much? Is there one that you could share with us? Oh, yeah. It's the one where people say, God only gives you what you can handle. That one just makes me want to scream and run away. Um, because in my personal situation, I think God has given me more than I ever wanted to handle. Um, I'm handling as best I can being responsible for two siblings and two daughters uh, with my husband's help uh, with disabilities. Um, so that, I don't think God really had anything to do with giving me this. It, it doesn't matter who gave it to me. I have it, and I have to deal with it. So when I hear that, it just makes me cringe. I would never, ever say that to somebody, especially somebody who has a child with a profound disability. That is the last thing they want to hear. That's amazing. Erica, I, I'm so appreciative of the time that you've taken. It, uh, it's always wonderful to, to chat leadership with individuals. And it's, it's odd of all the leadership I talk about uh, and, and everyone can do it. I, I realized, you know what, I'd like to actually chat with a couple of people who hold these senior leadership positions, whether it's in companies, whether it's in the military, because just by, by saying everyone can be a leader, I don't ever want to diminish the fact that there are certain roles that take a certain, a certain set of skills that not everyone has. And I think that there's real value to come from, from chatting with those individuals. And I know that how busy you are, so it means the world to me. Thank you so very much, and for your kind words. Thank you, Drew, and um, best of luck to you. And next time you're in town, I, I plan on being there. That is retired Major General Erica Studerman of the United States Air Force. My sincere thanks to her. And that brings us to the end of another Day One Leadership Podcast. Thanks for being with us again. And come back next week because you are in for a treat. Our guest next week is the two-time winner of the world's best blog award for his blog, 1000awesomethings.com. He is the multiple-time number one New York Times bestselling author for The Book of Awesome, The Book of Even More Awesome, The Book of Holiday Awesome. He is Neil Pashrika, and he'll be talking about his newest book, The Happiness Equation, Want Nothing Plus Do Anything Equals Have Everything. This is an extraordinary conversation next week. Make sure you tune in. 
Here's a sneak peek. You can keep looking outside for advice, or you can just double down on sitting alone on a bench somewhere and asking yourself what you want to do. And then when you do it, it feels totally in line with your values. And it's like a, you know, a, the cover of the remote control battery set, like clicking into place. It's like snap. You feel so good. There is nothing as fulfilling as doing what you want to do. That's New York Times bestselling author of the Book of Awesome, Neil Pashrika. He's going to be on the podcast next week. Head to dayoneleadership.com to subscribe and get all of our daily leadership insight, as well as links to all of our social media so you can get everything that comes out, our blog, our video blogs, and of course, new podcasts as they come live. I'm Drew Dudley. This is the Day One Leadership Podcast. This is day one. Every day is day one. I'll see you next week. Thank you.